This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Michael Rothstein Show. I am your host, as always, Michael Rothstein. This episode brought to you by Visa, Indeed, Regents Field, and Bet Online. So today's going to be a little bit of a different episode than what we usually have. If you remember back last season and in the beginning of the offseason, occasionally we'd have a guest on that maybe didn't talk as much about the Detroit Lions, or even about football. And this seemed like a good time for multiple reasons to do that on today's show. First, for Lions fans, hopefully it gives them a little bit of respite after a rough two weeks. And don't worry, we'll be back on Wednesday with a full mailbag edition of the show where I'm sure we're going to have a lot of conversations about the Lions. And then beyond that, later in the week as things go along. We'll obviously talk more about the Lions, some about the Cardinals, and go from there. But today, on today's show, we have Jeff Perlman on the podcast. Jeff and I go back a few years. I was an interview on his on his website for his Quas. I'm a big fan of his podcast, Two Writers, Slinging Yang. And Jeff Perlman today has his new book coming out, called Three Ring Circus, and it's about the Shaq-Kobe-Lakers dynasty. I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Some of y'all have asked me in the past about writing, about reporting, about journalism, about books, and if you're into that, I think this will be the podcast for you, and you'll maybe learn a few things here and there. We also talk a little bit about his USFL book, which is actually one of my favorite books period. It's called Football for a Buck. And if you want to read about a team from Michigan that actually won a lot, you should pick up that USFL book. Like I said, we talk a little bit about the Michigan Panthers. And hopefully you enjoy this podcast. Just a couple of notes before we get to the interview today. Matt Patricia and a couple of players talked on Monday. As far as Matt Patricia goes, To me, the biggest thing of note came when I asked him about Tracy Walker and Will Harris. If you didn't know this and you didn't realize, Will Harris actually out-snapped Tracy Walker by 10 snaps. It's something that doesn't make sense to me. It hasn't made sense to me. This is already bordering on Graham Glasgow territory from last year. And when I asked Matt Patricia very bluntly, essentially, why is Will Harris 
playing more than Tracy Walker? This was his answer. And I quote, I think we have a really strong safety room. Obviously, we have to play better. So it's hard to say that after a loss. I think those guys competed all the way through training camp and consistency and everything that we are trying to do in the different packages that we run and things like that, that we felt in those games that Will had certain roles, Tracy had certain roles, and we were going to rotate those guys through. And the snaps are off by 10 here or there. That's going to happen based on some of the packages that are in and how the game goes. But try to keep it as balanced as possible with all those guys that are in that situation. That's just where we feel we're at with it. Certainly for us, competition every single week. With that, I think both players have made plays that they need to do a better job on and they need to execute better. We just try to put whatever package we think will help us win that game out there at those times. Certainly the penalties are a thing that stick out that are an issue that we got to do a better job of. With all that being said, every single week can be different from that standpoint and those guys have to go out and compete every week. End quote. So then I followed up on that by asking, well, Tracy Walker was a full-time starter for you last year. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase my question. What happened? How did he go from a full-time starter to a part-time player for you? And Matt Patricia said this, quote, I don't think those would be tough words. I wouldn't say anybody says nobody wants anybody not to be a full-time starter. We just have to go out and compete. Every year is a little bit different from that standpoint. I think the back end, the DB room has changed completely from that aspect of it. And guys work during the course of the offseason to improve on certain things. It's just about competition. But certainly without an offseason program and shorter training camp, we have a limited snapshot of what that competition looks like. We continually evaluate it as we go through the course of the season and things that Things can change as we go through for us, and I would say particularly the safety position. I generally like to play a lot of safeties, and those guys will be out there in different roles and different capacities. I think from that standpoint, they're all kind of starters based on whatever package we're in that particular game or that particular week, end quote. Well, um, yeah, so that was a lot of words, and what I basically took from that was... They play a lot of system, a lot of packages. They feel like Will Harris is better at some things than Tracy Walker, that Tracy Walker is better at some things than Will Harris, and that they're going to play both of them. And that Deron Harmon, who played 100% of the snaps, is going to play all the time. That was what I took. And that's not a knock on Deron Harmon. I think Deron Harmon is a good player. I think he's done well so far, as, as well as any Lions defensive player can do. He seems like he's around the ball a lot more than other Lions players, which is a positive at this point. But to me, it just makes no sense why Tracy Walker would not be on the field for you as much as possible. It just makes no sense to me. He's a guy that you can play in the box. He's a guy that you can play deep. He's a better tackler than Will Harris. He's a better coverage guy than Will Harris. I just don't get it. And I understand you invested a third round pick in Will Harris a couple of years ago. But guess what? You invested a third round pick in Tracy Walker the year before that. Tracy Walker's in his third year. He was a player last year that really looked like an ascending player. He looked like a guy that might end up being a captain of the secondary after you traded Quandre Diggs. And then two days into practice in training camp, he's running with your second team and he hasn't moved from there since. So I just don't get it. I really just don't get it. I tried to get answers, at least on the record from Patricia, and you saw what happened. Uh, do I believe that there's some truth in there? Does he play a lot of safety? Sure, but that doesn't explain why Will Harris had the third most snaps of any safety 
and there were multiple defensive players, linebackers, defensive linemen who played more snaps than Tracy Walker. Sure, different players, different positions, without a doubt. There's there's no arguing that, but Tracy Walker is one of your best defensive players. Like, I'm sorry, he just is. There's no question to me about that. Sure, you can challenge that. Challenge me if you want it. Has he played great? No. But he's at least played well. He's made some plays for you. He's broken up some passes. He's registered quarterback hits. If you want, let's take a comparison. Tracy Walker had two tackles, a quarterback hit, and two passes defended against the Packers on 39 snaps. On 49 snaps, Will Harris had five tackles and no other statistics. Tracy Walker also had only had one of only three quarterback hits by the Lions, and he had half of the team's pass breakups on Sunday. So, like I said, I just don't get it. He seems like he's active. Yeah, his coverage on Robert Tanyan's touchdown, as we talked about on yesterday's podcast, was not good. He slipped. He fell. But I, he's he's played better than Will Harris, and there's just no question about that. By the way, if you're wondering, some of the players that have had more snaps than Tracy Walker in Week 2 among the secondary, Deron Harmon, Amani Awarie, Jeff Okuda, as you expect, would expect, Will Harris... Daryl Roberts played more snaps than Tracy Walker. And that is it as far as secondary guys go. But Romeo Quar and Trey Flowers both played more snaps than Tracy Walker. Deshaun Hand played more snaps than Tracy Walker. Jared Davis, who's essentially been more of a part-time player at this point, played more snaps than Tracy Walker. And yeah, I just don't get it. I just really don't. So you had four linebackers three defensive linemen and a host of secondary players have more snaps than Tracy Walker. And Tracy Walker might be the Lions second or at worst third best defensive player, at least in my opinion, just does not make a ton of sense to me. Anyway, we've talked a lot about this. Hopefully you enjoy the interview with Jeff Perlman, which will be right after the break on the Michael Rossi show. Visa knows that local businesses are the heartbeat of our communities. Whether they're our corner stores, our coffee spots, or our favorite shops, local businesses have always been there for us. They remember our orders. They call us by name. Always giving back, making a difference, and going that extra mile to support us and our community. And right now, more than ever, local businesses need our support. So now it's time for us to return the favor. The next time you go shopping, make the choice to shop at local businesses and look for the contactless symbol and tap to pay with a contactless visa to help support your community. Because where and how you shop matters. Visa. Everywhere you want to be. Official partner of the NFL. And listen, even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people 
fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Now, back to our show. My next guest on the Michael Rothstein Show, if you follow journalism at all, he needs no introduction. He just finished the book, Three Ring Circus is about Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty. It comes out September 22nd. Jeff Perlman, welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show. Thanks for coming on. Now, if you said I needed no introduction, why did you just give me an introduction? Because I always give people an introduction. And this is also a football podcast, so people might just be more confused while you're on here. Oh, I see. Well, my next book, uh, maybe I should do the Billy Sims story as my next book and, you know, earn my way back. (laughs) <laughs> if you do the Billy Sims story as your next book, that actually could be an interesting book. He, I love Billy Sims. Just because of the way his career just, you know, ended due to an injury that now guys come back from pretty quickly. It's, I think about that. Like, I, I always wonder, like, 1970s athletes, right? You see the technology now and you're just like, I could have played 10 more years with that. Like, I actually think you may disagree with me. And you're the expert and I'm not. I think Billy Sims was not that Barry Sanders did anything wrong wearing number 20. Obviously they had the tradition. I think if Billy, if Barry Sanders had worn number 20, you'd see a lot more number 20 Billy Sims jerseys in Detroit because that guy was an electrifying player who sort of just got obscured a little bit because another small back wearing number 20 came along was even better. No, I, I actually would totally agree with you. And it's interesting that you say that because so Billy Sims has like a little barbecue joint in Ford field and it's like Billy Sims, like number 20 barbecue, but if you were born, so I was born in 1980. If you were born like 1980 or later, maybe 1978 or eight later, maybe you don't remember Billy Sims at all. You don't know anything about him other than what you've heard. And it's Barry Sanders. So like, that doesn't make sense. But if you were born in like the early seventies, the late sixties, like Billy Sims was your Barry Sanders. And his high kick. So I was born in 72 and I, I really remember him from magazine covers but if you go on YouTube and you look at Billy Sims' high kick entering the end zone, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, he, and he had the best Afro of all time. Well, he, he was awesome. He's still, he's still around, too. He comes to Lions games. like yeah. Not as much as Barry does, but Barry's also tangentially employed by the team and gets paid to go into suites and all, all of that, which is a complete change from when he retired when he wanted nothing to do with the team. And yeah. there was lawsuits and the whole very similar to what's happening with Calvin Johnson now. But, you know, they treat their good players really well in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. The few they've had. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they, they treat them so well. So, all right, let's just get right into the book here. How does this book idea come about for you? Well, I wrote a book years ago called Showtime about the Magic Kareem era. And um, 
It ends abruptly because that era ended abruptly with Magic's HIV announcement in 1991. And I just always thought it was really interesting how you had most teams, like something like that happens. You have this decimation. It takes years to rebuild, blah, 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 blah. But they really had this quick bounce back. And I just think the Shaq-Kobe era is just as interesting as the Magic-Kareem era. And it happened really quick. And what I like is I actually started, this book actually in a way feels a tiny bit like a sequel. It, it actually begins with Magic Johnson's abbreviated 1995 comeback, which was kind of a disaster. He came back, he played a bunch of games. He did not get along well with his teammates. It was awkward. It was a weird fit. But then Magic at the end of that season is basically like, I'm done with this. I don't want anything to do with these players anymore. And that's when they get Kobe and that's when they get Shaq. So it's almost like that book led into this book. And I just really kind of felt compelled to go further with it. Is that when you realize, like, was that, was really that end of Magic's career that set, was it 17, 18 games, something like that? Was that? That was a little more than that, but not, it wasn't great. Yeah. Was that really what kind of tripped it off in your head of saying? A little bit. I just think it's interesting. It's interesting. There's this one year in Laker history, 1996 calendar year, where Magic Johnson, Shaq, and Kobe all happened in the same year. And I just think that's a really interesting crunch of time um, that people don't think about very often. So I just, yeah, I, I just kind of want to go back and, and really dig into that more. So, and it was cool. And also like one thing you hear a lot from agents and from editors and when you're publishing companies, when you're, when you're selling a book, particular sports book, it's who are the characters this thing is going to hang on? Like who, why is someone going to buy this book? And with that era, you really have three, you have Phil, you have Shaq, you have Kobe, three huge, huge history-making NBA characters. So I just, it seemed like a pretty good topic to take on. So when you go about that, because I've never written a book. I've tried once, didn't go all that well, long story, but. That's because you tried writing the Billy Sims book. No, I did not try writing the Billy Sims. I tried writing a book about an even more difficult topic to write about (laughs) that was sold less and I just couldn't get it sold. But when you start embarking on this, how do you go about it first? Because like, I know from a newspaper perspective, when I'm taking on a bigger project, I'll like work from the outside in. It's like, I don't worry necessarily at the start about getting, you know, Kobe or Shaq or Phil, or I, I don't remember if Jerry Buss was still alive when you maybe started mm-hmm. this project or not. Yes. I, I work kind of those outside guys, like the, you know, the 13th, 12th guys on the roster, the assistant coaches and kind of start picking off stories. So that way, when you go to, person x you're like i i know all this crap about you that you maybe don't think that i know or that no one really knows is that the same process for you with a book or is it different in that you need chat kobe phil bus some of the other guys in order to actually make the book happen first of all i want to give you props for the major inside journalism question right there which i i like a lot um yeah i'm very similar actually i've, I've never heard anyone else express it that way like um the first thing I do is I get all the media guides. I go on eBay and I'll buy all the media guides from the period. And I will make files for every single person in the media guide, every player, every coach, every assistant coach, every front office person, every ball boy, if they list them, anyone. And you do two things simultaneously. You build a library, a, a library at the time period from just doing deep clip digs and also buying every book also usually on eBay that's ever been written about the subject. So you're reading and absorbing it all. And at the same time, you're, you're tracking down these people. And I've, I kind of have the same philosophy you do. I want to be able to go to Shaq or Phil Jackson and say, I've interviewed blah, 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 number of people, right? And I want, 
And I want that person, I want Shaq to say, whoa, you talked to Mike Penberthy? That's a deep dig, right? You, that's a deep dive. Or you talk to, you know, like, I'm big into training camps. So just as an example, some of the great material I got in this book was from a guy named Eric Chenoweth, who was a former Kansas center who was in camp with the Lakers in 2003. And I always say, like, Shaq may not remember being in camp with Eric Chenoweth, but Eric Chenoweth is definitely going to remember being in camp with Shaq. So you find those people. I go to them first, too. And I get their stories, and I, you cobble together this thing. And then you go to the bigger guys, and you say, look, I'm working on this book. I've interviewed 250 people so far. You're a major, majorly important person. I would love to talk to you. And the beauty of it is if you do it that way, the bigger people are actually less important than you would think. Because you obviously, you, you, part of your job is to get fresh material from people. But Shaq has done about 8 million interviews. Kobe did about 8 million interviews. No one interviewed Eric Chenoweth. No one interviewed Paul Shirley. Few people talked to Mike Penberthy, you know, or Jimmy King. So I'm just, I'm like you. Build them all up and then hit the big guys. Yeah, no, I, for bigger things, that's, I feel like how I have to do it because you'll also sometimes get more time. Now, in the latest story that hasn't run, I believe, when this podcast will run, I don't know if it's going to run the same day or whatever, it's running soon. I actually got denied by the person that I was writing about, but they were like, I will deny this, but I'll actually, I will fact check this. So like, there, I'll make sure there's nothing wrong that is wow. absolutely wrong. That said, you're like, okay, sure. But you look at it and you say, well, okay, I need to do all this work because if I don't get that person, I still have to tell this story. I still have to write this book. Is it the yeah. same thing for books? Like if they, if you did not get Shaq or Kobe, would like they have been like, you know, hey, we gave you this advance, but it's not going to happen? I didn't get Kobe. I got Shaq. I got Phil. I didn't get Kobe. Um, first of all, I want to say something you just said. Like when someone says to me something like that, like I'm not going to help you, but I always view that as an opening. I always think like I can still go back to them and be like, blah, blah, blah. I just, it's okay if I just ask you this one thing because there's one thing that really confuses me. And sometimes that actually works out okay to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, I, there's no expectation when I go into a book who's going to talk to me and who's not going to talk to me. There's just none. But I just, when someone doesn't talk to me, I take it as a, uh, I don't take it as an offense at all. They have every right not to talk to me, but I take it as a challenge. All right, you're not going to talk to me. Well, I'm going to track down every high school teammate you ever played with. I'm going to talk to every opponent you played against. Not that I'm looking for dirt. I just view it as this challenge now. All right, I'm going to be harder and go further than I, I was even probably going to go. So with Kobe, just as an example, now he was alive when I wrote the book. Um, but I was calling all his hard high school teammates. And I was calling the Adidas guys. And I was talking to everyone about Kobe Bryant to the point where I felt like I had a really, really deep understanding of Kobe Bryant from that time period. Yeah, I mean, if you, I think you have to in some ways do that where it's like you need to create this picture of this person, whether or not they talk or not. Like I, I feel great, and I don't know if it's the same way for you, but for me, when I'm taking on a bigger story, not necessarily a book, I feel the best about that interview going in if it's almost like I elongated fact check with a little bit more there. Where it's like, I know X, Y, and Z about you. I'm going to ask you about this, and you're just going to give me a little bit more color. And oh. what your view of what it was. Yeah, usually important. I mean, I always, you know, whenever I talk to younger journalists or I, I, I teach out here at a school, I always say, like, you have to go into these interviews armed with everything you, you have. And the, the worst way to approach a subject is show him or her that you know nothing about them. And you go in and so how old are you? You know, or, oh, so where'd you grow up? I mean, that's a, that's a deal breaker. Like you're just, 
But if you go in and you say, oh, you grew up in Gary, Indiana, did you used to eat at blah, blah, blah. Or, oh, you're from Bethesda. My uncle is also from Bethesda. Do you, have, you ever go to that park? It's a, it's a huge difference maker. So I always try to go into the interviews knowing as much as I can. Also, you don't, you don't want to waste your bullets. Let's say you get an hour and 20 minutes with Shaq. I'm not going to use that time asking him how many years he was at LSU for. You know, that'd be a complete boneheaded move. So I'm yeah, like, and they can filibuster that question into a five-minute answer, and then you've just lost some time. Sure, 100%. So how much time did you get with Shaq and with Phil for, the, for your book? All right, so Shaq, I got about an hour and 20 minutes, I would say. It was in. I flew to Atlanta. It's kind of funny how that works. Like, I don't know how much money I spent, but I flew to Atlanta. I had to get a hotel in Atlanta, blah, blah, blah. And you get an hour and 20 minutes, but it's worth every minute. It's, it was great. Phil was amazing. So Phil, I was having trouble reaching Phil. And Jeannie Buss, who's the owner of the Lakers, I know from Showtime. And Jeannie's always been really nice to me. And I sent her an email once. And I was like, if you were me, how would you get Phil? She so goes, well, let me email him and see what he says. And she wrote me back and she said, uh, all right, here's Phil's email address. He said you could reach out. So I emailed him and he said, when do you want to talk? And I said, is there any way I could come to Montana and do it in person? And he's like, yeah, sure. Fly to Montana. Again, I have no idea how much time I'm going to get. I meet him in a coffee shop. I say, I just want you to know, I really appreciate you doing this. And he goes, um, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. And I was like, oh, well, this may not last long. And uh, we sit down and I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, I was thinking I was going to take you for a tour around Flathead Lake. Okay, that sounds good. So that was like a three-hour drive. We drive for three hours around a lake. Then he's like, why don't we stop for lunch? We stop for lunch for an hour. Then he's like, you want to come back to my house? Sure. We're sitting out on his patio for whatever. Then he's like, i kind of getting tired. Why don't we have dinner later? I'm going to take a nap now. We meet for dinner that night. So I basically won the like, you know, raffle eight-hour day with Phil Jackson. And he was awesome. And he was great. And it was really like, it was just a nice day, you know? And we probably talked 50% about Montana and you know, spirituality and books, but it was, it was great. It was great. That's all. So is that, you know, it's weird. Like I think as journalists, you kind of in your head, you're like, you know, that was a really good interview or maybe that's like a top five interview I've ever had. Or like, you know, you know, which are the good ones. At what point during that you say, all right, this is maybe going to be one of the top ones. This is going to be one that really helps, helps seal the book for me. I, the funny thing is I wouldn't say that was, I would say that was one of my top, whatever, experiences i would not say content wise it was one of the best interviews of thing is he's talked a lot through the years so it's not he gave me some great stuff it was cool it was fun it was you know whatever but it was more this is going to sound weird but this is actually true too this is a little inside baseball so like in a lot of ways getting shack and getting phil are important for more for different reasons than you would think number one it gives you cred like, oh, yeah, well, I spent eight hours with Phil Montana. Oh, I flew down to Atlanta. I talked with Shaq the other day. It gives you cred. Because then when other big guns are like, well, who have you talked to? You'd be like, well, I was with Shaq X weeks ago. The other thing it does is when you – the truth of the matter is when you promote the book, a lot of people don't really care about the inside baseball element of writing a book. And they just want to know, so who would you talk to? And if you say, I talked to Mike Penberthy and whoever, it doesn't have the same oomph as if you say, well, I went down to Shaq or I went down you know, to Phil or blah, blah, blah. So it kind of matters in a weird sort of cred way as well. No, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think that even happens with newspaper stories, especially if you're telling, you know, more profile type features. Yeah. It's like, well, who'd you talk to? And like, sometimes I've had, there have been situations where it's like, this person's quote wasn't that good, but 
people are going to know who this person is. So I need to figure out a way to, even if it's a partial quote, get it, you know, because then, oh yeah, like, oh, yeah. this person talked to, you know, Roger Penske or, or whatever that for a story that like evolves them. Like it's, it's a weird business. <laughs> it is a weird business. And the, the thing that I, I don't like is, so the book comes out next week and you know, I send out my email to everyone I interviewed and I'll be like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. The book's out. Thanks. And, um, and then in, inevitably in two weeks or so, I'll get an email from someone saying, wait, I didn't see my name in the book. And you have to be like, yeah, sorry. I feel bad about that. And I do feel bad about that, but you don't, you, you interview, you probably use 15% of the quotes you actually get, you know? So a lot of it is just good for background information or details or layering. Now, again, this is a very dorky inside question, right? But if you have somebody that was incredibly helpful to you that you know will probably read the book, but is definitely not in the book, do you kind of almost give them a heads up, like in that first email of saying, hey, your book's coming out. I really appreciate everything that you told me, whatever. By the way, don't be surprised when you're like mentioned in the acknowledgments or like in the notes and that's it. Um, I have done that before. I don't always do it, but I have done it. If it's someone I've, I've built a real relationship with and you feel bad about it. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask, do I ever put someone in and the quote isn't that good, but you're like, you feel guilty. That I actually don't do. I either use it or don't. But yeah, it sucks. I mean, it sucks. People get excited about this stuff and understandably. And that happened a lot with my USFL book, right? I knew just a ton of people and there was a lot of layering of information and I did get a, a decent number of people like, oh, I bought the book, didn't see my name in it. And I'm like, uh, sorry, man. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the USFL book because I did want to ask you a bit about it since A, this ends up being more of a football podcast and B, sure. there's actually a successful Detroit football team mentioned in that book, which does not something that often exists in Detroit when you're talking about professional football. What was the Michigan Panthers part of that book like for you in kind of digging around their past because they had had so much success in the very short time of that league. I mean, they were a great organization. They would have beaten the lions at that time. Most people think, I think they would have too. I mean, they had Bobby Abair quarterback, Anthony Carter, wide receiver, had a lot of good defensive players. Um, they were really fun, you know, and it meant, it clearly meant a lot. Like they worked because the lines were so bad. That's one of the big reasons they worked is that football fans in Detroit were so desperate for sort of any kind of taste of success. And here's this team that comes along and not only are they good, they win the championship the first year. Not only do they win the championship, they have this really charismatic quarterback named Bobby Hebert, who's great. And the thing I loved about Hebert that I did, I just loved, I, like um, they had a center named Matt Braswell, who was also from the South. And Braswell told me like Hebert's Cajun accent was so thick and Braswell was the only one on that team who could or at least in the huddle who could understand him so Bear would do some play we're gonna run blah 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 blah, and then Braswell would say okay guys this is the play because they couldn't understand what Bobby Bear was saying um but it just was the organization was really well run they really scouted well um smart savvy but then they left you know then basically Trump wanted to move kind of push the league to move to fall you weren't going to compete against an NFL team at the same time. You had a bad NFL team and they left for Oakland and that was it. Do you think that had things gone differently with the USFL and obviously there's a big broad question, right? And they had stayed in spring that they still would be around. No, uh, 
uh, I don't. But I think I think they would have merged. They would have been absorbed by the NFL. I think you would have had five or six franchises that are NFL franchises. I mean, there were, you know, there was um, a team in Tennessee well before there was a team in Tennessee. There was a team in Oakland after the Raiders left. Uh, you certainly could have had a third New York team if you had a team play in Manhattan, which they were talking about. Um, you know, there were a lot of interesting markets. Birmingham was doing really well. Jacksonville, they had Jacksonville before the NFL did. So I think eventually the NFL would have gotten really tired of this sort of, I mean, the USFL signed three straight Heisman Trophy winners. You know, the NFL was really pissed off about all of this stuff. I think ultimately they would have just been like, let's just bite the bullet and, and bite these guys in. Yeah, I, I wondered that because when your book came out, and I think you and I talked about it then, that was right, it was either right before I started covering the Alliance of American Football or it was right after. I forget. Time is a circle these days. Yeah. But I remember reading that and seeing so many like similarities, but also that the AAF was so deferential to the, to the NFL versus the USFL, which really wanted to compete with them in some ways for players, that it just made me realize right away why the AAF was never going to work because they were just going to always be looked at as like the kid brother that never got anywhere. Like, did well, you- I don't think... I don't think um, I don't think those team, those leagues can work anymore. I just think the NFL is too ubiquitous. Like when the USFL came along, it wasn't like the NFL owned the spring, and it wasn't like the draft was that big a deal or the combine was that big a deal. You know, the NFL just is it's three sixty five now. So for a league to come along, why would you care? You know, like it's just it's just almost impossible. Um, so I don't think the alliance had much of a of a chance anyway. In hindsight, yeah, but. It's, it's a tough time to take on that league. Yeah, well, I was going to say, the Alliance, for many reasons, did not have much of a chance. And doing a deep dive on that and realizing their financial issues, that was just a – it was – the fact that they got to week one, I think, was a – I would say more than a minor miracle. Going back to the Lakers book, because we kind of got off on a tangent there a little bit, uh, what was one thing and that you learned that maybe you – didn't realize at all surrounding that team. And I realize that that's, again, broad, but... That's cool. I mean, one of my favorite things is the um, the only reason Kobe became a Laker, if you want to go to one person who made Kobe Bryant become a Laker, it would be John Calipari. Um, John Calipari was the new coach of the New Jersey Nets. And the Nets had the number eight pick in the draft. And they were committed. John Nash was their general manager, and they were committed to drafting Kobe Bryant. They were going to draft Kobe Bryant. It was a done, sealed, 1,000% deal. But behind the scenes, um, his agent, Arn Tellum, he has this deal with Adidas for Kobe. Kobe has a new shoe. He's going to be an Adidas guy. And they really want to get him to L.A. They think that's the place he should be, L.A. And Jerry West loves Kobe Bryant. He came in for workouts. It's the best work I've ever seen of anyone ever. He just... He went with a guy from Mississippi State where that would name Dante Jones and just dominated Dante Jones, who was a good player. So, but it's draft day, and the Nets are going to pick Kobe Bryant. And Arn Tellum says, calls John Calipari. And Calipari was a coach, but he also had final personnel say. And Arn Tellum calls him and says, look, if you guys draft Kobe, he's going to play in Italy for the year. And Calipari tells this to John Nash, the general manager, and John Nash is like, that's a bluff. There's no way. That's garbage there's no way and i think it's garbage too there's no way kobe bryant was going to just skip a year of the nba and play in Italy. um but calipari is terrified of this idea that he's a new coach of the nba and he's going to look me to look like a fool by a 17 year old kid you know and if he doesn't come and this is supposed to be this magical rebuild and calipari was in the first year of a five-year contract so 
the GM was like, listen, man, I'm telling you, it's like, we're not going to fire you if this doesn't go well first year. It's okay. And he's like, no, no. And then um, Kerry Kittles' agent, Kerry Kittles out of Villanova, his agent calls the Nets and says, if, if Kittles is there at eight and you don't draft him, none of my players will ever sign with you again. And now the Nets are like, oh, my God, what the hell is going on? It's like it's every bad thing at once going on. And Calipari has this final say. And he finally says, we're, uh, we're taking Kerry Kittles if he's there at number eight. And if he's off the board, we'll take Kobe Bryant. And, of course, Kittles is there. And the Nets wimp out in a very Nets way. And they draft Kerry Kittles out of Villanova. And Jerry West, sitting in L.A., just goes bananas because he's about to get what he, the guy he truly considered the best player in the draft, better than Iverson, better than Marbury, better than Camby. West was convinced Kobe Ryan was the best player in the draft. And I think you could make the case he was. Oh, I think you can more than make the case he was. And the, the, the weird thing about the Kerry Kittles wasn't a bad no. NBA player, by the way. Like, he's a good player. Yeah, most years, if he's drafted number eight and has the career that he has, you're like, all right, kind of live with right. that. Not amazing, but, but yeah. that was a, not a bad pick. No, absolutely. And well, but it's thinking about that, like broadening, right? If Cal, if Calipari ends up drafting Kobe and Kobe goes to the Nets, Calipari, I mean, I don't think NBA coaches don't last that long. I don't think he's still coaching the Nets, but maybe he's still in the NBA instead of in Kentucky now. All right. So a few thoughts on this. Number one, I talked to Kittles for the book and he had played against Kobe because uh, Kobe's from outside of Philly and uh, Kittles was a Villanova. So they played against each other. And Kittles told me, he's like, I would have taken Kobe too. Like, he's like, I would have taken Kobe. So, um, which is funny. Um, I actually think there's this, there's this alternate universe where Kobe Bryant becomes a net. Okay. The team is garbage. This is the nets of like Ed O'Bannon and Khalid Reeves. It's really bad. Kobe Bryant becomes their starting shooting guard. He's 18 years old. He's shooting 25 times a game, shooting at like 36%. He averages 22 points a game. Maybe he's rookie of the year. But the Nets are garbage. And Kobe just falls into this pattern of like shooting a million times, which was his favorite thing to do. But the team's never very good. And he goes down to have this very like, I don't even know who would be the modern equivalent, but Reggie Theus kind of career or Dominique career where he scores a ton of points, but he's never great. And I think going to L.A., I mean, he shows up in L.A., Dow Harris is head coach, and Dow Harris is just not sold. Like, he thinks Kobe's going to be great one day, but he's not putting him in a lot as a rookie. And Kobe is frustrated and angry and ornery and pissed off, and he thinks he's better than Eddie Jones, and he thinks he should be playing. And Dow Harris, I mean, he does not get credit for that, what transpired, but he was very resolute. But this kid, he said, he actually said to him at one point during a game, he pulled him from a game and he said, you came out of high school – and that means you decided to become a man and I'm going to treat you like a man, you know, and I'm not just throwing you out there. And it drove Kobe crazy too. I think it was the best thing. I think if he had gone to New Jersey and he'd been playing 38 minutes a game, I think it would have been a disaster. Because Cal absolutely would have played him like 38 yes. minutes a game. <laughs> yes. And he would have put the ball in his hands yeah. and he would have been this, he would have been a dynamo and he would have sold net jerseys out the wazoo. But I don't think they ever raced around him. It was just a poorly run organization. Actually, so when you're listing off guys, the guy I thought of when you're describing shooting a lot, very good player, I thought of Carmelo Anthony, like, immediately. Oh, like, good, yeah. Maybe he doesn't yeah. win anything, you know, because Carmelo hasn't really won anything. I mean, the X factor is Kobe's work ethic, factually, was off yeah. the charts, and I would not say Carmelo seems to be the same way, and his determination, his doggedness, and maybe, 
maybe he rubs off on those guys on the nets and maybe they're better players. Maybe they get, maybe they bring in Kendall Gill and they bring in Jason Wayne, whatever, a couple of good players and maybe it works out. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Or alternate history, right? Like I love that stuff. Yeah. Oh, me too. It's you always wonder, especially with the team that I cover with the lions, like there were so many alternate history moments that it just blow. Like what if Barry Sanders doesn't retire? Like what if they don't treat him like crap? You know, all that sort of stuff. It's always really interesting. But when you, so going back to the book, when you're digging in, at what point do you start structuring the book how you want it? And, and by that, I mean, again, nerdy, dorky journalism question. Like there are so many ways you can go, so many places, so many scenes you can start. At what point do you realize this is where I want to start? And this is where I think I need to end. And do you really stick chronologically because it is factual, you know, a history book, or you kind of feel like you need to bounce a little bit? Because I know you've done a little bit of both in your books in the past. So um, I do not outline. I never outline. I've never written an outline for a book. Maybe the first one. I don't, I don't even remember doing it, though. I generally, somewhere along the line, I'll be sitting with someone, and someone will be telling me a really good story or, or an interesting anecdote. And I'll think, oh, yeah, that, that's a pretty good prologue. Like, that would be a pretty good way to enter the book. Like, this book starts with a fight between Kobe Bryant and Samaki Walker on a bus, on the Laker team bus. It was just a really cool story and it told a lot about Kobe and sort of his place and his need, his needs. And then I, I basically, you do go back. It basically has a, I, I think of it almost like a tree where it's like a chronological structure, but there are all these branches that come off of it. So uh, Rick Fox joins the Lakers and you're going chronological, chronological, and then you're like Rick Fox. And you, you kind of take this branch off to the side and talk about Rick Fox. And then you come back to the narrative. So it's this flowing narrative. It's all going chronological. It's more like a river, I guess. You're going down the river chronologically, but then you branch off. All right, here's Nick Van Exel. I'm going to talk about Nick Van Exel. I call Bob Huggins in Cincinnati. We talk about Nick Van Exel. Nick Van Exel, he grew up tough upbringing, blah, blah, blah. And now he's here. And then you're back. So it's a lot of that. I, the thing I really try not to get bogged down in, um, and it's hard, are the games themselves. Uh, most people sitting here in 2020, myself included, don't particularly care about the intricacies of the Western Conference Finals and, you know, whatever. I mean, to some degree, they're important. The, the championship series are kind of important. But, I mean, they, they, they won the third title against the Nets, and they just destroyed the Nets in a sweep, and the series was really boring. I think I gave it a page and a half, maybe two pages. It just wasn't that interesting of a series. Yeah. So. The cool thing about writing a book that I really like is you really are your own DJ and your your own sort of MC. Like you, you control the narrative. And it's there was a guy, a really good writer named Lee Montville, who I know, who I worked with at SI, and he he wrote a Babe Ruth book. And he said something to me. I always remember. I was like, "Why would you write a Babe Ruth book? There've been a million Babe Ruth books." And he said, "But there's never been my Babe Ruth book." And I thought that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it. Like we all have our different perspectives and our approaches and our judgments of who's important and what's important and what dates are important. And you just kind of, you lay it out there and it's almost like, in a way you wouldn't say this. It's like Jeff Perlman presents the Lakers of blah, blah, blah. And if you were writing it, you know, it'd be you present the Lakers of so-and-so. And it's, it's all based on vantage point and perspective. When did you realize you wanted to write books versus doing what you had been doing in your career, which was very successful at Sports Illustrated and heading down kind of that magazine path when did you feel like you wanted to maybe make that shift? Well, so I had a real eye-opening moment. I was covering the, uh, the 2001 World Series between the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. And it was one of the great World Series of all time. It was a great World Series. And I was, uh, I was sitting in the press box at Yankee Stadium. 
and I started having stomach cramps for some reason. And I was like, I wasn't writing that day. I didn't have deadline that day. So I was like, uh, I told Verducci, Tom Verducci, I was like, I, I got to go. And I went to my, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife's apartment. I'm sitting on the couch and it was a game that ended in an extra inning home run, I think by Scott Brosius. And it was one of the great World Series games I'd ever seen. And I was so happy not to be there. Like, I didn't want to deal with the crush of reporters. I didn't want to deal with all the cliche questions. I just didn't want to deal, you know? And I was thinking, if you're a baseball writer, happy not to be at a World Series, at an epic World Series game, maybe you shouldn't be a baseball writer, you know? Like, that was actually a moment for me. And right around that time, I was approached by an agent. Her name was Susan Reed. And my friend John Wertheim at Sports Illustrated just written a book about the Williams sisters. And it kind of opened my ideas, my eyes to the idea of maybe writing a book. And she was like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, I don't know. And we threw some ideas and she said, what about the 86 Mets? And I'd grown up in New York in the 80s and kind of dove into it and just really loved the experience. Like I love, writing books is a beast in a lot of ways. It's mentally draining, self-doubt. You think everything sucks, blah, blah, blah. But that you can take your time and really dive into a subject and really explore characters and it's just, you know, it's everything I loved writing at a magazine times a thousand. And also I never wear shoes. I'm home to see my kids grow up. Um, you know, so I guess really that moment sitting in, sitting on my wife's couch, happy not to be at a baseball game was probably the beginning of my shift in my career. You, you mentioned that, you know, obviously you're home a lot now. I've talked to some Hollywood type writers, like guys who write scripts, who are, you know, showrunners. And what happens is they're like, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home, I'm in the office, I'm in the office. But when there's a deadline, they're like, I'm going to Tahoe for a weekend and locking myself in like a room or like yeah. a cabin. Is it similar for you when you're getting kind of close where you're just like, I need to disappear for like three, four or five days to knock this out or? Yeah, well, I'm a big coffee shop writer, like a huge coffee shop writer. I write almost all my stuff in coffee shops. I don't even know why, it's just this thing now and I like the ambiance and the, the smell and you know, the little chatter and the illusion of social interaction is kind of what I think of it as. Yeah. So I usually don't go away. Sometimes my family will go away. They're like, we're going for, we'll be gone for a week. You do what you got to do or two weeks. But I generally, I'll just, when it's deadline time, I'll just retreat. I'm the guy in the coffee shop who you have to think is crazy because I have these huge duffel bags filled with notes and I'm sitting there in the corner talking to myself and I'm drinking my fifth cup of coffee and my hands are like this and I'm just, I'm a nightmare, you know, but um, it's kind of my happy place at the same time. No, I totally know what you're saying. I miss, so I live like three blocks from the coffee shop where I usually do most of my writing. I, I walk in there, sometimes I'll still get, I don't drink coffee anymore, so I'll get like tea, whatever, but I don't stay inside and I see people who are sitting in there and I'm like, how are you staying? Why? I don't get it. I'm confused. I'm like, I just not comfortable doing that. But yeah. I walk out and I'm like, oh yeah, that was a life I lived like a year ago. Like a year ago, why'd you, I would up, have why'd you give up coffee? What? Why'd you give up coffee? I gave up coffee. Okay, so I gave up coffee because I would drink. So near the Lions facility is a Starbucks, and I'm not a big Starbucks person, but it was convenient, done, whatever. Starbucks had an off menu. I think it's now on the menu, but off menu item called a Trenta. <laughs> yeah, which, I've had it many times. Which, yeah, so I would get two Trentas of cold of their cold brew. Wow. A day. And then, and both of them would be consumed by like two. And then I would be leaving the facility at like th somewhere between three and four 30 and driving home was a struggle. 
Like I, like I would, if I was not on the phone with somebody, uh, while, while I was driving home, like I was worried I was going to fall asleep. Wow. And it got to the point where one time I did nod off for like a second and it scared the hell out of me. And this was, uh, I think it was like, it was maybe towards the end of the season or it was in, it might've been around free agency, like where I had to go to like, they had a thing for their new free agent guy that they signed that I don't think is even on the team anymore. And this is like four, three to four years ago now and four years ago. And I just kind of, we were out that night it was in like St. Patrick's Day actually and I just like turned to like my closest friend in Ann Arbor who's also in journalism and I was just like I'm done with coffee he's like what I'm like yeah I'm quitting coffee I'm done and for like three months I basically had the shakes I had to nap every day my body was like why are you doing this to me um I started working out more to try and balance that but yeah I quit coffee just because I was like it became such a Thing that was controlling my energy levels yeah and i was just like i i gotta be done with this so i started drinking tea now i, I just recently went back to black tea and i have had one coffee since then and that was an espresso in barcelona um at uh Exento bar i'm sure i just said that wrong just because I, you needed to order something to sit down and breakfast wasn't allowed to be ordered yet and right. like if you lose your seat you're never getting it back so I you had, miss coffee. What? You miss coffee at all or no? No, I don't. I don't at all. Um, I found that I really didn't like the taste. Like I tried coffee ice cream a few times just to be like, oh, do I, is it the taste? Like, do I still like the taste? Nah, because like I could have gone to decaf and it's just like never anything that, um, no, I, yeah, I did that. That was, that was, um, that was the first of a few different things that I ended up walking away from that were like vices and whatnot. And, uh, it was, people are still shocked, especially I remember my bosses that August, I was up in Bristol and we were talking and I was like, yeah, you know, I know because they knew I was coffee and I was like really high strung. And I was like, yeah, I quit coffee. I haven't had coffee since March. And they're like, oh, you're going to have coffee. We're going to bet you. You're going to have coffee at some point. So like, they were like taking a bet of whether I was going to have coffee. I'm like, I'm telling you. And, you know, obviously I won all bets because uh, I have, I, other than that one espresso in Barcelona last year, it has not happened. But is it true now you're a crack addict? Is that No, thankfully not. Um, I, have, I have been able to avoid all of those things. Um, <laughs> that would be, be a rough, a rough go. That will be a yeah. rough transition. But no, it was – coffee was – I loved it. I loved coffee. Like I loved my iced coffee. I would get it all the time. Like I needed it. And that jolt was amazing, but it was that come down that, that was really hard. Are you, so are you like a constant coffee, like mainline? Like I, uh, no, not a ton. Not a ton. I mean, I'm not, but I'm not, I enjoy the taste of coffee and, um, but I mainly like it like as a, like with chocolate and crap in it, which is not <laughs> that healthy for you in that way. But I, um, I'm more just, I like having a drink near me. No. Yeah. Oh, I get it. I, I am the guy in the coffee shop that goes in and in the summer orders a bottle of water. And they're like, wait, that's it? I'm like, yeah, yeah just a bottle of water. Thanks. They're yeah. like, you know, you can have free. I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to be here for a while and you don't charge for Wi-Fi. I feel like I need to give you something. Yeah, so that's good. That's here's, right. a dollar, here's a dollar 25 for your bottle of water. Here's a dollar tip. They're, the, they're like, you're tipping me on water. I'm like, yes, <laughs> just, just accept this. Like, you're a good patron. Yeah. Like I enjoy being in this coffee shop like the owner knows me a little bit because like 
he's a giant lions fan so you know i'm sure he's wondering where i've been it's probably a little bit concerned but i don't know anyway jeff i guess the the last thing i'd want to ask you about the book would be where i mean where do you think the book leaves off And, and by that i mean there's always like a book always ends but there's always more to a story where where do you make that decision of where the book leaves off uh, well, I ended it with, um, I basically ended it with the dissolution of the dynasty, which is it's after the 04 season, they lost to the Pistons. Um, actually, it's funny because they lose to the Pistons. And I talked to, the Lakers had a backup guard named Kareem Rush. And he told me they had like a little team function after the loss in Detroit. And Kobe walks in and he says to Kareem Rush, I'm not playing with that motherfucker again. And he was talking about Shaq. And it was right at a time where uh, Kobe was about to leave. Kobe was really threatening to leave as a free agent to go to the Clippers, which would have been a dagger to the heart of the Lakers. He was going through the whole Eagle Colorado sexual assault uh, trial ordeal. Shaq was definitely getting up there a little bit. He wasn't quite the same player he had been. Phil Jackson could not stand coaching Kobe and was really debating whether it's even worth doing this anymore. Um, so I kind of ended with just this, this dynasty dissolves and moves apart and you know the legacy is strong but it just wasn't going to last yeah i just wasn't sure because there are so many different endpoints for that right like whether it's Shaq being on tv commenting about you know there are just so many different potential ways the the harder thing was the book was done and kobe died so i was done it was done it was done and i'm sitting in a car co- in a coffee shop in california the corner bakery in irvine california and i get a text from a friend of mine and she says um it was just like rumors Kobe Bryant died. I was like, what? And uh, shocking. I mean, just shocking. And I, I didn't really know what to do with it, right? So I, I didn't do anything for a bunch of days because it's not it's not that important. A book is not important. When someone dies, you know. Yeah. But um, I ended up writing a, an author's note at the beginning, sort of discussing Kobe's legacy and who a guy was from 96 to 04 isn't who a guy was when he died at age 41, you know? And I think there were two reasons I wrote it. Number one, because I really believe it. Like the guy you're reading about is a kid and he was immature and he came straight out of high school and he could be a pain in the ass. And, and then I think I also read a little self-preservation. Like this book isn't that kind of Kobe Bryant in a lot of ways from that time period. He does not come off great. Um, his work ethic is amazing. He could be a, kind of a pain in the ass though. And teammates didn't really like him. And he was an obnoxious young guy who thought he was God's gift. And maybe he was, but, um, so I ended up writing in a way that's all right. The last thing I wrote for this book was the author's note, which is the first thing you read when you read the book. Did you, I, and for those who don't know, you wrote a book about Walter Payton that some people loved, some people not so much loved <laughs> is yeah. maybe the best way to put it. Like, did you learn something maybe from there of just saying, Hey, you know, a guy is different at one time versus another, or did that not enter? The thing about the Peyton book that was interesting is it came out, basically Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt about two or three weeks before the book came out. And nobody had galley copies. For some reason, they didn't embargo the, the copies. I don't know why, but they did. So the excerpt Sports Illustrated ran was all about um, Walter Payton sort of near the end of his life, depression, uh, drug addiction, you know, uh, or painkiller addiction, you know, uh, suicidal thoughts and they came out and 
people just thought I was writing this book that destroyed Walter Payton. And I, it was 95% not destroying Walter Payton, but all people knew. So I, I do feel like from that experience, I think there's a benefit to getting out a little ahead of a story and letting people know, look, like that thing I kept saying when that happened was you, you got to read the book, you got to read the book, but it was really too late. Like it all was out there and like Mike Dicka is saying he would spit on me and I'm getting destroyed on radio in Chicago. And it was young and I was fragile, you know, not nearly as fragile as I was in, I don't think. But um, I think you just have to get out ahead of it. And I always bring it up and I always say, look, the Kobe in this book is not a Kobe everyone's going to like. It doesn't mean it's a finished product of who he was. It was a period in time. I just say that over and over again because I mean it. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hopefully this is a little bit different episode than my listeners are used to hearing, but hopefully they got something out of it and enjoyed it because writing obviously to me is something that's very important. And I think that learning how to write a book and, and hearing how a book is constructed is just something that's valuable for a lot of people because it can take, you can take some of those lessons and put them into your own life in some way, shape or form. I hope so. I, <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. I really do. So I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Jeff Perlman. You can follow him on the Twitters at Jeff Perlman. That is P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N. You can follow him on his website, jeffperlman.com and really go check out some of those interviews he used to do they're called the quas he might actually still do them i'm not positive on that mine is probably in there somewhere but they were always entertaining and i always learned something from each one of them and most importantly go check out his book it's out today it's called three ring circus it's about kobe Shaq, and the lakers and i think that you will enjoy it you can always follow me on twitter at michael at mike rothstein or on Instagram at Mike Rothstein. You can follow me on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist. Please feel free if you are so kind, leave this podcast a five-star rating, a review if you'd really like. Most importantly, download and subscribe. Check out my stuff on ESPN.com as well. And with that, we will talk with you and be back talking about the Lions tomorrow. The wait is over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today. And get, take advantage of all of the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts.